Tonight I'd like to talk about the place of the body in, the, in spiritual life, and particularly the body in this form of spiritual practice. And I'd like to begin by t- sharing with you a little bit of my own uh, journey of trying to figure out what place the body had in this practice. I first bumped into the teachings of Buddhism when I moved from New York to California in the early 70s. And as many people do when they're encountering a new practice, I kind of floated around and tried out several of the different traditions that were available then, and I ended up doing quite a bit of exploration of the Zen practice. And it seemed that in that time period, especially in the 70s, and with this kind of new exploration that many of us were going into, that in Zen practice, it seemed like you had to have a particular kind of body. It seemed like you had to appear in a certain way. I could never have gone into the zendo wearing what I'm wearing here tonight. You know, I would have had to put on robes and um, take off earrings and take off hair. Actually, <laughs> um, it probably wasn't quite that severe. But I had this sense that okay, if you do Zen practice, then you have to kind of appear in a certain way. You know, you have to be uh, bald and rather fit and be able to sit and endure long hours of sitting without moving in a very strict posture. And you had to learn to bow and to prostrate and to make very precise movements and not make any mistakes and all that. So um, it was an adventure. And I learned many things from my years of doing Zen practice. But I found that it was also rather confusing. There were very little instructions, actually, on how to work with the body, other than things like, sit still. That was one. And the other one I remember <laughs> was at the beginning of, of retreat, especially, was this, the monitor bellowing out, die on the pillow. <laughs> and I was sure it was important to do. And I mustered up all my determination to this time really do it. But I hadn't a clue. And I thought I would die, but not in, the <laughs> not in the Zen sense of the word. Then, in around 1979, I happened to hear Joseph Goldstein give a talk on the Dharma. And I was very moved and touched. And so I decided to try out this other form of Buddhism called Vipassana. So I wandered into my first Vipassana retreat in Yucca Valley, California, which is out in the desert and a little more informal than here. And so it was amazing to me to walk into this hall and to look around and see that you didn't have to look any particular way. I was met with, you know, what you see in this room, 
a great variety of um, sitting styles, postures, some people sitting in chairs, some people having very elaborate arrangements of their <laughs> pillows and blankets, and you know, it looked kind of like a big slumber party. <laughs> but it was also here that I, in this form, that I began to very importantly relax. Because I think in all my years of Zen practice, I never once relaxed. And when we're not relaxed, we can't actually connect. We can't actually contact our moment-to-moment experience. So with this form of practice, I began to relax. I began to find my own rhythms of practice. It was very... uh, amazing to discover that I actually like to get up early in the morning. That it it became clear that one could practice late and get up later, or one could go to bed early and get up early, that one could find one's own rhythm with sitting. It was also very helpful to hear very specific instructions on how to work with the body in terms of both posture, in terms of working with pain. And we will be talking more tomorrow about this in a more specific way. Working with intense emotional states, which are felt in the body. Working with the sense doors, with hearing, with seeing, with breathing, with sensing, with tasting, with smelling, with touch that there were ways of using this whole physical experience as a vehicle of learning, of understanding in my own experience the teachings of the Dharma. And so, here I still am. I continued with Vipassana practice, and it has been an incredibly rich exploration for which I'm very grateful I did some long retreats, and the more I was around, I began to realize that although there was a lot of learning happening through a deeper connection with my body, that I was still carrying, as many of us were then, some confusion about the fact of having a woman's body. I began to kind of hear in the little corners or in innuendos that somehow in this tradition, having a woman's body was considered somewhat of a disadvantage, somehow inferior. And that was very confusing and somewhat off-putting. I read descriptions at times of the woman's body written in the Buddha's time, which seemed rather demeaning and difficult to relate to. Now, I'm not saying that only women were, um, bodies were demeaned. We'll get to the men in a minute, but let me first, <laughs> let me first read you one description of the woman's body that was written by Nandaka, who left his wife to become a monk with the Buddha. And then one day, out on alms round, he met up with his wife on the road, and he decided, having turned his mind from sensual, 
pleasure to the Dharma, he decided that he should give his former wife a lecture on the Dharma. <laughs> so this is what he said to her. That wretched, malodorous thing, the woman's body, its nine streams always leaking, piss, shit, blood, tears come, saliva, snot, thin milk, and sweat. Yet you smirk over past conquests and imagine it might lure a son of the Buddha? Sex in heaven couldn't sway this beggar, how much less what's done on earth. Instruments of Mara, these legs and arms, hips, breasts, and sex. Mara sets out charms to snare dark hearts and muddy minds. But there are men untouched by lust or ignorance who've got no appetite for leaky, sweating bodies. <laughs> These ones have cut the cords, woman. These have gotten free. <laughs> I can't imagine that swayed her to take up practice, but <laughs> who knows? In reading such descriptions, I, I did come to understand that for thousands of years in the traditional Asian cultures in which, from which this practice comes, that descriptions such as these of the body, and particularly the, women's, the woman's body, were written for the express purpose of encouraging the monks to renounce the world of sensual enjoyment and to keep the noble precepts of austerity and celibacy. And although women's bodies were particularly described in ways we might find degrading or amusing or demeaning, depending on our mood, perhaps, it is also true that for men as well, the rules governing their lives as monks included many prohibitions on any kind of sensual enjoyment of the body. The kind of phrase that sums it up for the monks was, abandon all concern for the body. This meant severe sense restraint, emphasizing limiting one's contact with all the senses, with food, with women, with money, with material possessions, with books, with entertainment, with comfortable furniture, and even with one's own physical appearance. The body was seen to be restrained and transcended, period. Now, with that being said, I want to also, this is the middle way we're teaching here, so I want to also say that there is some wisdom in this, that discovering what happens when we aren't constantly engaged in sensory distraction and stimulation leads to another kind of opening of ourselves, another kind of discovery. And here, together on this retreat, we are all experiencing some degree of sense restraint. I'm sure you have been feeling some degree of withdrawal from your 
favorite addiction, whatever it might be, whether it's television or talking to your friends or chocolate or who knows, whatever your particular um, favorite distraction is. But I would say also that to Western ears and to our sensibility, to describe the body as loathsome and to be reviled and harshly restrained is not particularly helpful. And one of the reasons it's not helpful is because as lay people living in late, very late 20th century, we come to practice already feeling quite conflicted about our bodies. For we live in a culture which which does just the opposite of traditional Theravadan teachings. We live in a culture which glorifies the body as an object, which says to us just the opposite of abandon all concern. It says, get involved work out, get fit, get your, your body in good shape, be prepared to live, you know, a long time. <laughs> Therefore, in our culture, we think that having the right kind of body and physical appearance is very important. It perhaps is safe to say that we think that the body and this is speaking generally, all present company accepted, that generally in the culture the idea is the body is who we are. So we better get the right kind of body, the right kind of physical appearance. And so look at what we do to try to match what we imagine is the ideal for our sex, for our age, for our occupation. We spend an enormous amount of time figuring out the right way to look. And we define ourselves. We feel good or bad about ourselves based often on our physical appearance. We look in the mirror and what do we see? Do we see the ideal body? Did you see that when you got up this morning? If you did, please raise your hand and we'll all look to see what is this ideal body that we're all so in pursuit of. We are quite identified with our weight, our height, our level of physical fitness, the color of our skin, our teeth, our hair, our eyes, certain body parts. We judge others by how their bodies appear, and we certainly judge ourselves. The former poet laureate Robert Haas wrote this short story. He calls it a story about the body. The young composer working that summer at an artist colony had watched her for a week. She was Japanese, a painter, almost 60, and he thought he was in love with her. He loved her work, and her work was like the way she moved her body, used her hands, looked at him directly when she made amused and considered answers to his questions. One night, walking back from a concert, they came to her door, and she turned to him, and she said, I think you would like to go to bed with me. 
I would like that too, but I must tell you that I have had a double mastectomy. And when he didn't understand, she said, I've lost both my breasts. The radiance he had carried around in his belly and chest cavity like music withered very quickly, and he made himself look at her when he said, Oh, oh, I'm sorry. I don't think I could. He walked back to his cabin through the pines, and in the morning he found a small blue bowl on the porch outside his door. It looked to be full of rose petals, but he found when he picked it up that the rose petals were on top. The rest of the bowl, she must have swept them from the corners of her studio, was full of dead bees. A very poignant but illustrative story that we do judge or look at each other based often on our physical appearance. So whether we idealize the Theravadan ideal of abandon all concern for the body and live quite an ascetic life, or whether we idealize uh, the 20th century Western type of body, which is the aerobicized, eternally young, thin, wrinkle-free, and cellulite-free body. (laughs) These are at opposite ends of the spectrum, and to try to emulate or become identified with either model obviously will lead us to some form of suffering. It's not who we are. And as with any identification, a a potential source of suffering. The ideal of abandon all concern for the body has sometimes led to monks scaling the walls at midnight to flee into a more relational life. So what I finally understood from just kind of like looking at these different ways of being and practicing and being around in the scene was that when I was experiencing having the wrong kind of body, not a Zen body or a man's body or a Burmese Sayadaw body, or when I got entangled in reacting to the notion of the body as loathsome and I didn't feel my body to be that way, that when I got into reacting to this, I suffered. I got very confused, I felt very lost, and alienated from a tradition that in other ways I was feeling tremendously connected with, connected to. Because in the practice itself, and this was the paradox, I was feeling more in my body, I was feeling more alive, more connected, more sensitive and open in my body than I had ever felt in my life. And it was a joyous and liberating discovery. I was learning to live in my body more comfortably. I was learning that I could survive deep emotional states of fear, of grief, of pain, and that I I would feel very acutely in my body, but I was learning that I could be with them. And it was very empowering. I was learning to respect and live more in harmony 
with my body's rhythms and needs. And this was all very deeply healing and a doorway to a richer appreciation of the teachings of the Dharma and how they relate to our moment-to-moment experience. Now it seems that sometimes uh, I think a lot of us have moved through a lot of this confusion and we're no longer so caught in these old images. But now I hear sometimes people saying things like, because we sit so still and we encourage the stillness of the posture, that somehow this is now associated with being anti-body. Or that if we're, not, um, if we're not moving or exercising the body, that somehow the body is being ignored. Or that we need to transcend it. And it can sort of look like that if you just, you know, were from the outside and you walked in the hall and you saw these people just sitting still, you'd think, What's wrong with them? Too much Thorazine. What has happened? You know, <laughs> get up, jump, move, show some life. You know, but the truth is that in the stillness itself, there is the possibility of exploring a way of living in the body from the inside out. That we discover the aliveness of this body in the very stillness of the posture. I remember one of my teachers saying, many, many years ago, he said, the deepest body work I've ever done is this practice. And I remembered that because there was some truth in there about how it is that we connect with our bodies almost on a cellular level when we go very deeply into the silence, into the stillness. When we learn to attend to our physical experience moment to moment, just breathing, just hearing, just sensing, the living process, which is this body, begins to reveal itself. Then Master Dogen wrote this. He said, In those moments when the world is experienced with the whole of one's body and mind, the senses are joined, the self is opened, and life discloses an an intrinsic richness and joy in being. This is the potential of exploring the place of the body in this practice. Sometimes we discover richness and joy. Sometimes we discover intense pain. We can't leave out that side. Working with pain in the body, you know, we don't advertise this. We don't say, come to IMS to work with your pain. (laughs) But it inevitably arises. It's a rare person who doesn't experience some form of pain in the practice. And working with pain is an enormous journey of discovery. Bringing moment to moment gentle, spacious, allowing awareness to the sensations that we call pain. We learn so much from that. 
I want to caution, however, right from the start, that it's not a guarantee that the pain will go away. And it doesn't mean that we are failing if we can't make the pain go away. I'd like to share a story with you about a woman who was a longtime meditator who discovered that she had, because of the practice, sort of taken on the belief that being a good meditator would protect her from pain. And so when she was pregnant and due for delivery, she decided to have a drug-free childbirth at home with a midwife. And it was very painful. And she wrote about her experience. She says, this woman's name is Linda Chrisman, and she lives in California. She wrote, even though my son was born at home with no compunctions and glowing with life, I had failed because I had experienced so much pain. Of course I knew that childbirth was painful for most women, but I secretly believed that I was different. I was certain that because of my years of body awareness practices, childbirth would be relatively easy. I had spent 15 years immersed in the study and practice of massage, Traeger bodywork, Rosen method bodywork, continuum movement, mindfulness meditation, and Vajrayana Buddhism. I understood and experienced my body to be an open, fluid, innovative organism, and I spent time daily attending to sensation through sound, breath, movement, and stillness. My basic meditation practice was to develop intimate awareness and compassion. But it was only after giving birth and feeling like a failure that I realized I had expected these practices to protect me from pain. I now know that my practices could not have protected me. On the contrary, they were designed to make me feel. It was because of these practices that I was able to feel, including pain. Pain is a part of life. I am not a failure for feeling pain. I am not a failure for being no different from any other woman who suffers in childbirth or any other person who cries out in agony. I am not a failure for wanting the pain to stop. It is through my body that I am challenged to feel the vastness of human suffering and to feel the truth that I am the same as every other human. I am challenged to feel whatever occurs with equanimity and openness. I am challenged to be intimate with life, with birth, and therefore with pain. So working with pain is a big part of our practice, and I certainly don't mean to scare you by reading this. Um, there's not, um, it's not meant to say that this is always the way it is, but there's a tremendous learning in working with pain. In the same way, we can learn how to be with intense emotional states in the body. We learn that we can locate them and feel them and bring gentle attention to them. 
And when we do that, we don't get stuck. They move. They move through. We don't get caught in endless replays of the story or create, create images of who we are or who we think we're supposed to be based on the presence of an emotion. We discover that we can work with our emotions directly. And we discover an enormous capacity for containing even intense states of feeling. There's a lovely little poem by Thich Nhat Hanh where he just illustrates this very point very beautifully. And it's a poem called In My Two Hands. It was written after the bombing of Ben Trey. And that was the town, I'm sure this will jog some of your memory, this was the town that the US had to destroy in order to save it. So after that, he wrote this poem. I hold my face in my two hands. No, I am not crying. I hold my face in my two hands to keep the loneliness warm. Two hands protecting, two hands nourishing. Two hands preventing my soul from leaving me in anger. These are embodied experiences and we experience them in this practice. As we become more settled and concentrated in our attention and in bringing our attention into the body, we can also begin to see how it is that we construct our personal story, how we make up the story of our lives based on our sensory experience. The Buddha talked about desire aversion and ignorance as being the primary forces in human consciousness which keep us on the wheel of repetition, of constant churning. Where do desire and aversion and ignorance begin? It's an amazing insight the Buddha had that these three states actually begin in the body as pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral. That every moment of sense contact brings with it a feeling tone of either pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. For example, every sound We don't have to think about it. It arises spontaneously, carries within it a feeling tone. We notice a pleasant sound. We notice an unpleasant sound. Now, we're sitting. Somebody comes into the sitting late, perhaps the person sitting next to you, and they're making some sound, which for you is unpleasant. Most of the time, we don't just leave it at there, do we? We don't just say, unpleasant, unpleasant, and then forget about it. I don't think so. Most of the time, that gives rise to some thoughts, perhaps aversive thoughts. 
unpleasant thoughts about our neighbor and why it is that can't they see that I'm meditating, who do they, why are they, and we're off on a story. On the other hand, we might be sitting in the morning and we hear this incredible bird. Ah, pleasant. Doesn't usually stop there. We begin to make plans for our next retreat. We think, oh, retreats, you know, they're so wonderful. You get to sit and listen to these gorgeous birds. And it's just so pleasant here. And everybody's so kind. And, you know, I wonder if the three-month course is full. And this is the way it works. This is the way it works. Or we might be sitting, say, again before breakfast and we're, we're feeling really settled and really content and really just everything is, simple, you know, really nice, flowing along. And the bell rings and people leave the hall, but you just don't want to leave. It's just too nice. So you realize that everybody's going into the dining room for breakfast and so a little more time goes by and then suddenly you have a thought. And it's an unpleasant thought. It's a thought that by the time you get into the dining room, all the bananas will be gone. You suddenly realize that you are going to have a bananaless day. And that may lead to more thoughts about how it is in life that you never get the banana. And you're always the one at the end of the line. And why didn't you think of this sooner? And how stupid of it of, you know, was for you to be sitting here and on and on. A whole image of yourself gets constructed. Gone is the peace. Gone is the contentment. So this quality of pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral is something we can begin to notice in our practice, and it can be a very rich exploration. When you find yourself tripping out in a story, see if you can go back and, just, and see what the trigger, what moment of pleasant or unpleasant were you not noticing. I'd like to share, if we have time, I think we do, uh, a story about a man Californian, so get ready. Um, a story about a man who had one day a pleasant thought. His name was Larry Waters, and he was, uh, he had, he lived in Los Angeles, and he had had a long, lifetime long dream of being in the Air Force. But he had been disqualified as a pilot because of poor eyesight. So instead, he had to content himself with um, hanging out in his backyard in Los Angeles and watching the planes fly overhead. And as he was doing that, one day, he suddenly had an incredibly pleasant and exciting thought. And that was that he would fly. He went to the local Army-Navy surplus store and purchased 45 weather balloons and several tanks of helium. The weather balloons, when fully inflated, would measure more than four feet across. Back home, Larry securely strapped the balloons to his sturdy lawn chair. <laughs> this is a true story. <clears throat> He anchored the chair to the bumper of his Jeep and inflated the balloons with the helium. 
He climbed on for a test while it was still only a few feet above the ground. Satisfied it would work, Larry packed several sandwiches <laughs> and a six-pack of Miller Lite. He loaded his pellet gun, figuring he could pop a few balloons when it was time to descend, and went back to, and went back to the floating lawn chair. He tied himself in along with his pellet gun and provisions. Larry's plan was to lazily float up to a height of about 30 feet above his backyard after severing the anchor and in a few hours come back down. Things didn't quite work out that way. When he cut the cord anchoring the lawn chair to his Jeep, he didn't float lazily up to 30 or so feet. Instead, he streaked into the L.A. sky as if shot from a cannon. He didn't level off at 30 feet, nor did he level off at 100 feet. After climbing and climbing, he leveled off at 11,000 feet. <laughs> oh, Larry. This all began with a pleasant thought. <laughs> At that height, he couldn't risk shooting any of the balloons. <laughs> Lest he unbalance the load and really find himself in trouble. So he stayed there. drifting cold and frightened for more than 14 hours. <laughs> Then he really got in trouble. He found himself drifting into the primary approach corridor of Los Angeles International Airport. <laughs> A United pilot first spotted Larry. <laughs> he radioed the control tower describing passing a guy in a lawn chair. <laughs> a guy in a lawn chair with a gun. <laughs> the radar, the radar confirmed the existence of an object floating 11,000 feet above the airport. LAX emergency procedures swung into full alert, and a helicopter was dispatched to investigate. LAX is right on the ocean. Night was falling, and the offshore breeze began to flow. It carried Larry out to sea with the helicopter in hot pursuit. <laughs> Several miles out, the helicopter finally caught up with Larry. Once the crew determined that Larry was not dangerous, they attempted to close in for a rescue, but the draft from the blades would push Larry away whenever they neared. Finally, the helicopter was able to ascend to a position several hundred feet above Larry and lower a rescue line. Larry snagged the line and was hauled back to shore. The difficult maneuver was flawlessly executed by the helicopter crew. As soon as Larry was hauled to Earth, he was arrested. 
by waiting members of the Los Angeles Police Department for violating LAX airspace. As he was led away in handcuffs, a reporter dispatched to cover the daring rescue asked why he had done it. Larry stopped, turned, and replied nonchalantly, a man can't just sit around. <laughs> it all began with a pleasant thought. Quite an excursion, isn't it? <laughs> Every time I read that story, I still can't believe it. So here we are, back in our grounded bodies, no helium balloons attached. I'd like to close tonight with another experience of the body, uh, a meditation practice that I learned uh, about a year or so ago at Spirit Rock where I teach, there was a, a visiting monk from Thailand by the name of Achan Jumnian. And he teaches a guided meditation on the bones, on the skeleton of the body, the bones in the living body, in our bodies. And it's an interesting practice because, of course, we can identify with almost every part of our body, but I think rarely do we get too identified with our bones, unless we have really special kinds of bones, you know, like Greta Garbo bones, or, you know, or people say, oh, you've got great bones for some reason. But most of the time, many of us are not particularly identified with this aspect of our body. And yet, when you think about it, we have to admit we wouldn't be much without our bones. <laughs> our skeleton, our skeletal structure, so to bring this kind of awareness, to contemplate this interior part of our body is a very sobering reflection, a reminder really of what will be left when this life is over. So I think to end our time together, it would be um, interesting if we did some of this practice, and I would like to teach it to you while you're standing up and then have you go right into the walking so you can explore, if you choose, another way of, of sensing this living organism, this body, this reality of this skeleton that inhabits our interior. So if you would stand up, please, and I'll, I'll give you some guide, a guided journey into the skeletal structure. So if you would, just feeling your feet on the ground, you might want to close your eyes and just get a sense of the way in which the skeletal structure of your body supports from the inside how it is that you are upright at all because of these bones. Kind of go through the entire body from the feet all the way up to the skull, sensing the full 
inner experience of the skeletal structure. And then come back to the feet. Hard to say feel your bones because you're not going to feel a sensation, but you can sense the presence of the the bones in the feet and how it is they are there providing a foundation for your standing. And then moving up into the legs, the calf. And then the very complicated structure of the knees. Bend your knees just a little bit so you can sense that the bones that surround the knee and that encase the knee and allow the knee to bend in this one direction. And then moving up into your legs and your thighs. And how it is the thighs and the hips meet. And the whole pelvic area, the bowl of your pelvis as a bone structure, and how it carries and supports the internal organs. And in the back, at the base of your spine, sensing the vertebrae, the spinal structure, how it allows you to stand erect. And follow it up your back, visualizing it, sensing the bones up into the shoulders, and then moving your arms out slightly and feeling the the bones of your arms as they attach in the shoulders and moving down to the elbows. And then into the incredibly delicate bones of the wrist and the fingers. appreciating the subtlety and the delicacy of how all of that is attached and works so well. And then coming back up to the front of the shoulders and feeling the chest, the bones of the chest and the ribs, how they also somewhat move, but also provide a structure for the lungs and the stomach, solid and yet also flexible. And then bring your attention up into the neck and into the head. The skull imagining the skull, no eyes, no ears, 
no tongue. Just bone and space. And then again into your feet, feeling your feet on the ground. And staying with this interior sense of a skeleton. And as Achan Jumnian instructs, he, the end of this guided meditation, he says, and now take your bones for a walk. So please do. Thank you. This talk was given by Anna Douglas at Insight Meditation Society on July 19, 1998. It is an offering of the... Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.